In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, when someone trusts in Jesus for the full and free forgiveness of all of their sins, uh, that is when that person becomes a Christian, he isn't just zapped with knowledge about how to be a Christian. He doesn't just automatically know what to do without any effort or instruction. Rather, he, along with all Christians, need to be taught how to live and how to speak and how to behave. And that's what St. Paul does in the epistle lesson for today. He's preaching to us the law, not in a condemning way to show us our sin, uh, though it does, but to instruct us and to teach us. Uh, In theology, we call this the third use of the law or the third function of the law. What the law does, it instructs us and it guides and rules us. So whenever the Bible tells us how to live or how to think or what to avoid or what to do, that is properly called the third use of the law. So it's very good for us to meditate upon those words of St. Paul because we all need instruction, regardless of how old you are or how long you've been an LCMS Lutheran or anything like this. And so that's what I'll do today, is I'll work through the epistle lesson verse by verse, going through it. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul begins by saying, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now the reason Paul says this is because there's a great temptation to regard theology as some sort of head knowledge only. Uh, Like it's a theoretical or academic exercise. It's just another philosophy of having the right opinion or something like this. And some of it think uh, of it this way. You come to church, you learn the right answers, and then you check out. And there are things to learn. There are things to study. But the temptation is to turn theology and the Christian life into just a mere knowledge of facts. Of things you're just supposed to know, just trivia or something like this. And the truth is that the Christian life is a life of wisdom that is uh, lived in this way. It's practical application. Uh, That's what God's word is for your life as well. It changes how you think. It changes how you act, how you behave, how you speak, and all of these things. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that you shouldn't behave one way on Sunday and then a different way on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday and so on. What you learn here is for life. It's for your entire life, for every facet of your life. So St. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he says these words. He says, what do wise people do? He says, he makes the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so I have a few comments just on this, these words here. Paul doesn't say that the days are usually evil or mostly evil or that they're becoming evil. He just says the days are evil. When God created this world in six days, he created all things good. He called it very good. But Adam and Eve fell into sin and they ruined all of our days. They ruined it by falling into sin and ushering in evil in this way. And it seems strange because, uh, it seems strange because I don't really know anyone who honestly thinks about life in that way. Uh, Just consider what I'm saying. 
In my experience, the, the way that most people view life is like this. That life is generally good. That life is a good thing, but it's punctuated by a bunch of bad things. So that the normal course of life, the normal way it's supposed to go is that things are good. But then there's these interruptions and these things that come in and it's bad. Oh, now here's one day and then another day, another bad thing happens and, and so on and so forth. And so they, they think this way and they say something like, life would be so much better if, or life would be so good if blank didn't happen. If this thing or this event didn't happen. Or when people suffer and go through things, they will say, why? Why did this happen? Why is it happening? Or why did this evil thing happen? Or why do bad things happen to good people? We'll say something like that. And all this does, if you pay attention, is it only proves that they think that the norm is good. And that the exception is evil. That the days are generally good, but that the bad things are the things that ruin uh, our days and that they're punctuated throughout our life. But that is not how the Bible speaks. That's not what we heard today. The Bible says that life is normally and usually and generally and totally evil. That the days are evil and that they are interrupted with good. That's the way we ought to view it, the way the scriptures speak of it, that evil is the norm and that the exception are good things. And I think this is absolutely astounding to think about because here's the point. The Bible says the days are evil, which is an objective fact. However, in our own subjective experiences, we would say that life is not generally evil, right? Because not every single second of every single day has been evil for you, has it been? No. And I know a good number of you are sad and going through a lot of things right now, but I also know that all of you can look back on your life and remember good things. And you can remember good times, and you can find that the majority of your days have been good days. And good things, better than you've deserved. So then the question is, well, what's going on? Is the scripture not true? What's happening here? But the, the point is, is that if all the days are evil and yet the majority of our days have been good, then what does this mean? It means that God has had so much grace and mercy upon you. So much grace and mercy upon you in the midst of this poor and miserable life. That you look on your days and you see and you find so much good when that is supposed to be the exception. Just consider how much good God has given to you. You woke up this morning. God has given you another day of life. You have a family and a wife and children and you have friends. You have members of the congregation here with you. You have air conditioning and lights and a seat and you have food. You have ears to hear. You can hear these words right now. You have a church to come to. There's so many good things in your life. Think of how many good things you have. Think of how many good moments and beautiful memories that the Lord has blessed you with. If if God had not intervened and blessed you so much 
Do you know how many good days and moments and memories you'd have? Zero. You'd have nothing good. You'd have, you'd have nothing. And if God had not intervened, do, do you know how many evil and sorrowful days you'd have? All of them. Every single second of every single day would be misery and, and agony and anguish. That's how it would be. You, would, you wouldn't even know what good is. You wouldn't even be able to talk about it if the Lord hadn't intervened so much and blessed you and given you so much grace and mercy. You would only know what evil is. You wouldn't, you wouldn't understand anything else. And yet, look at how, how much the Lord has blessed you. How good he has been to you in this veil of tears. Even in the very midst of every evil day, God has given you so much good that it outweighs the bad. So Paul says, make the best use of the time. That's how it says it in English. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. That is not a very good translation. It's a little weird. It's better translated this way, literally. Redeem the time because the days are evil. And this is very different because we're not just making the best use of the time that we have. We are redeeming these days. To put it another way, our life was supposed to be only good things, which is what God intended in his creation. But the devil stole all of our days from us. But now, in Christ, we are taking them back. We take these days back in this way. Not by enjoying them with a hedonistic life or indulging in carnal things, but we take them back when we put our faith and our trust in Christ the Lord who loves us, who gave himself for us, who died for us, who rose for us, who redeemed us by his blood. And since God redeemed us, then we can redeem these days. That every single day you live, no matter how difficult or sad it may seem and be, is not a waste for the Christian. For the unbeliever, these days are evil and they're a waste. They lead to nothing. But for the Christian, even even if he has an entire life of misery and anguish, not one of those days is wasted. But every single one of those days are redeemed by the Lord. When you apprehend Jesus in faith, you redeem not only just some of your days or moments of your life, but all of them, every single day. When you have him, not an ounce of your pain or of your suffering is useless or needless, but it is redeemed by the God who loves you. And so that's why St. Paul says, so don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, which is to say, don't let the devil have these days. Don't let evil take these days from you. Don't be a fool. God wants you to redeem every day through faith in his son. And then Paul goes on and he says this. He says, and then don't get drunk with wine because that is debauchery. Well, that's fine and we understand that. But why does he say that then? What's the connection between that and what he just said? Well, this is simply, what he's pointing out here is that this is simply how the world deals with the evil days. The world cannot handle suffering and guilt. They can't cope with evilness. 
And so they avoid it. And so they self-medicate and they'll drown their pain in, uh, with drunkenness. They avoid reality. And so they get in, drunk or intoxicated or high. They fill their minds with pornography and wicked things to numb themselves from the pain of life. They eat more food than they should. They engorge themselves into gluttony. They buy more things than they need, more things than, than, than they need to wear just to feel better, more clothes or more cars or more junk, whatever it is. All of these are forms of drunkenness, of ways of just masking the pain and covering our eyes from reality. They enslave themselves to these things and they addict themselves to whatever, to whatever takes them out of this life. This is just a sad, sad way to try and deal with this life, with these days. And Paul says, don't do it. He says, avoid these things. Don't do these things. And then he says, this is what you should do. And he gives us a better way. And then he says these words. He gives us a better life. And he says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to our God and Father. This is incredibly important because instead of getting drunk and avoiding life, the Christian faces it head on. I, I think this is remarkable. People... People will avoid talking about or thinking about death. They will avoid it like the plague. You don't, just don't even mention it. You're going to bring the whole room down. You're going to change the tone, everything. Just don't even talk about it. We know it's a, a real thing and we see it every single day, but I just don't want you to talk about it. That's how they deal with it. Meanwhile, the Christian does what? He sings about it. In, in his hymns, we sing about death. And we face it head on. We talk about it directly. It doesn't scare us. We talk about death. We talk about these evil days and suffering. And we sing about it. Even in church. At home. Everywhere. That is simply what Christians do. We sing. Christians sing. It is not an option. It is not just a pastime that we have in church. Just to, just to make the time go by quicker. Or because we're bored. Or we don't know what else to do. We don't sing because it's a hobby of ours. We sing because this is the Christian life, what Christians are supposed to do. I don't want you to leave here today and say something like, look, okay, well, pastor told me I have to sing, so I'm going to sing. So I guess that's what we're supposed to do. No, forget me. Forget what I'm saying. Just read the Bible. Just open the Bible and see what he says. He tells you to sing these things. When I was younger, I used to think that singing was dumb, uh, especially in church. I thought, man, that's, I thought it was weird. Um, in my defense, a lot of the hymns were, were not so good, but that's not why I didn't sing. I didn't sing because I thought I was too cool to sing in church. Um, so I wouldn't sing the liturgy or the hymns or the psalms or anything uh, or anything like this. Uh, but I was stupid for thinking that. That is a stupid idea. That is a bad idea. It is a foolish and a childish thing to think. And I thank God that he saved me from such an idea. 
the point is, is that we are to sing. That is what a Christian is marked by as well. I, I know I say this probably once a year now, but I don't care if you sing well. I care that you sing loud. Sing loudly in church. Sing with all of your might, because I, I love hearing you sing. Your neighbors here, your uh, fellow brothers and sisters here in church need to hear you sing too. Because sometimes there are days that they can't sing. Sometimes for whatever reason, they can't bring themselves to sing those words. They don't, they, they, it's too emotional or they're sad or whatever it might be. And they need you to sing. And they need to hear those words still from your mouth. I love hearing the congregation sing. And sometimes I stop singing a verse just to hear you guys sing it to me. Uh, just to hear those words so that they go into my ear. Um, my favorite choir, by the way, is my congregation, is Zion. Um, you sing to one another. And fathers, you sing to your families. Sing hymns to your wife and to your children. And husbands, do the same. Mothers, sing hymns at home. Sing them to your infants. Sing the liturgy to them while you're changing them and taking care of them. Before you eat, sing hymns. In fact, just put a stack of hymnals on your dinner table. And don't eat unless you sing a hymn. Do that. <laughs> About 500 years ago, uh, the blessed Dr. Martin Luther preached a sermon on the same exact text. It was October 18th. And, um, and when he got to this part, this is what he said about singing. In typical Luther fashion, he says this. He goes, <clears throat> Hear the word of God and become inebriated with it. That is, become drunk on the word of God so that you sing, not indecent songs like peasants in the tavern, but those who are drunk must sing. You sing like this, blessed be the Lord, the Benedictus, or the Psalms in which you give thanks to God. Praise God so that it may resound to heaven and the devil may run away. Sing with your whole heart, like those in a beer hall. Be inebriated and drunk in such a way that you sing in the name of God that is fitting for you. We are supposed to sing, but we don't just sing anything. We don't just sing hymns because we like the melody. We sing good, strong, and solid hymns that teach pure and solid, true doctrine. That's what we sing. And if we don't know how to sing those hymns and we haven't learned them, then we learn them and we take the time to study them. In fact, I learned very quickly that the spiritual health of a congregation oftentimes correlates to the hymns that they sing and love the most. For example, um, I've received four calls uh, within six years uh, at Zion. And uh, in the first six years here at Zion, and one of my first questions to the congregation when they were interviewing me and, and uh, talking to me, I had questions for them. And one of my first questions were, uh, what are your favorite hymns? And it was a terrible sign to me when they said, well, uh, I don't know. I can't remember any. I can't think of any. And that was a bad sign. Um, others said something like, they just named some generic American evangelical hymns, which showed me that they paid attention 
more to the melody than the words. And they just kind of sang those because that's all they knew and they hadn't learned anything else. But then some of them would say something like this. They would say, I would, I would ask, what's your favorite hymn? And they would say, Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands. Or we all believe in one true God. Or triumph God be thou our stay. Or Lord thee I love with all my heart. Or dear Christians one and all rejoice. And I heard this. It's like, awesome. That is an awesome response. And that is a great one. And what I found is that every single time when, when the majority of the people in the church would name hymns like this, that church had, <clears throat> uh, had one of the strongest and most faithful and solid Lutheran uh, teaching and, and practice in that congregation. It was amazing how they correlated to, to, together um, with one another. They knew hymns were for confessing pure doctrine. And I think the reason there's a correlation there is because they took the time to learn these difficult hymns and learn to sing them. That they're theologically sound and they're challenging, which showed that they cared more about the word that they were singing than just the melody, than just the music. Now, my last point before closing here on singing is this, that we're supposed to sing at all times, meaning in every occasion. Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground when the Lord parted it. And what did they do when they got to the other side? They sang. David saw the Ark of the Covenant, and what did he do? He started playing music, and he sang. Isaiah and Habakkuk and Jonah and Zechariah, the Virgin Mary, Simeon, they all sang beautiful hymns and songs to God in joy. But we don't just sing when we're happy or when life is going well. We sing in the midst of trouble and in the midst of evil days. When Israel was enslaved to Babylon, what did they do? They sang. When Paul was in prison, unjustly in prison, what, what did he do? He sang hymns. King Saul was depressed. He was afflicted by a demon. And David picked up his harp and he started singing psalms to him. And the devil departed and he recovered. The martyrs, there are accounts, eyewitness accounts and historical accounts and recordings of this, that the martyrs, when they were facing certain death, they were on their way to be destroyed by lions with no way out, to be made a mockery before everybody. They were, they, they were put in the middle of, a, of an arena and they were going to be set on fire and things like this. And what did the martyrs do as they're being led out uh, to their certain death? They sang hymns. And there are reports that they were singing hymns even while they were dying. While their flesh was being torn apart, they were singing hymns. Even until their dying breath. There is nothing more pleasing to God and nothing more irritating to the devil than when you sing hymns to God. With all this being said, you have every single reason in the world to sing and rejoice and to praise God, no matter how evil your days have been. No matter how evil the days are, nothing can remove the fact that you have a God who loves you and who gave his life for you. You have a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, who bore the wrath of God in your place, 
who faced the greatest evil, the most evil day for you, who endured a painful suffering and death. And this same God is not angry with you or displeased with you or disappointed in you because of your sin. But he loves you and has forgiven you all of your sins. He has forgiven all of your sins in his death and his resurrection. He not only redeemed you with his holy and precious blood, but he redeemed your entire life. Every single one of your days, not one is wasted, not one is lived in vain. This God, your dear Lord and Savior, not only takes away your sin and guilt, but he has promised to redeem all of your days in his day and in his time. Wait for the Lord. He has promised to wipe away every single tear you've shed in this brief life of labor. He will save you from this veil of tears, and there is nothing more worthwhile while we wait for him than to recall his promises and sing them to ourselves, sing them to one another, to sing them at the top of our lungs in church ten times as loud. There's nothing more worthwhile, nothing more profitable for your soul and your entire life than to sing praise to the God who suffered and died for you, who was raised for you, and who made you yours, made you his forever. Listen to the words of this hymn. My soul, now praise your maker. Let all within me bless his name, who makes you full partaker of mercies more than you dare claim. Forget him not whose meekness still bears with all your sin, who heals your every weakness, renews your life within, whose grace and care are endless and saved you through the past, who leaves no sufferer friendless, but rights the wrong that lasts. His grace remains forever, and children's children yet shall prove that God forsakes them never, who in true faith shall seek his love. In heaven is fixed his dwelling, his rule is over all, O host with might excelling, with praise before him fall. Praise him forever reigning, all you who hear his word, our life and all sustaining. My soul, O praise the Lord. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.